It was a peaceful night in Crofton, Maryland. The only thing breaking the quiet was the soft clack of two small hands typing away on a clunky keyboard. First, they pulled up the usual culprits, a catalog of video games, a site for home computer builders, just another night of browsing for a geeky kid in the mid-90s. But then, a new batch of websites appeared. One page was about nuclear weapons, another about nuclear holocaust, then a simple file directory listing all the secret back-end data stored on the site, confidential internal memos about nuclear projects, analysis of nuclear weapons and current threats, private employee information. The little hands drew slowly away from the keyboard. Eddie Snowden knew he shouldn't be here. He had just accidentally hacked into the Los Alamos National Laboratory, the highest-level nuclear research facility in the United States. But this was just the beginning. Snowden was only 13. By the time he was 26, his computer trawling would turn up far darker secrets. Secrets that struck at the heart of American democracy. Secrets that thrust Snowden to the heart of a global debate on transparency, justice, and whistleblowing. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This is Espionage the ParCast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. I'm Carter Roy. This is episode five in our six-week special on whistleblowing, where we're taking a deep dive into the world of hackers and government secrets. Last week, we discussed the dangerous consequences of whistleblowing for the people who blow the whistle and everyone around them. However, one of the most prominent whistleblowers of the century is still at large. This week, we're covering Edward Snowden, 
Snowden is the NSA analyst who revealed the staggering breadth of secret government surveillance undertaken by the U.S. since September 11, 2001. His revelations changed the world and sent Snowden on the run. Edward Snowden was born into a family with a deep history of duty, service, and American identity. His mother's bloodline traced directly to the Mayflower, and a member of his family served in every American war from the Revolution to the Second World War. Snowden's parents were no exception to the tradition. His father, Lon, was a Coast Guard engineer. His mother, Wendy, had top-secret clearance as a benefits administrator, managing the retirement accounts of some of America's most clandestine operatives. But young Eddie Snowden knew little about his parents' daily work or the work of their colleagues. Top-secret clearances meant they could never discuss their jobs. Snowden grew used to this ubiquitous secrecy. But as he grew older, he realized that secrets could be uncovered once you understood the systems that hid them. He also learned that the process of unlocking those systems had a name, hacking. The most basic definition of hacking is learning the rules better than the people who created them and exploiting the loopholes. In computing, this often requires the skill to read and write computer code, which Snowden learned early on in life. His family got their first computer in 1995, when he was just 12 years old. Young Snowden took to the computer so quickly that his normally perfect grades started to slip. He would sink hours into the computer instead of homework. He just couldn't pull himself away. The computer was a portal to a more exciting world than his quiet suburban life, especially once he learned about programming, hacking, and the endless back end of the World Wide Web. But Eddie Snowden didn't start out hacking nuclear laboratories. The first thing he ever hacked was his homework. On the first day of his junior high history class, Snowden received the class syllabus, which laid out the specific grading percentages for tests, class participation, and homework. Snowden did a bit of math and realized that he only needed to do well on the tests to pass the class. Since he could ace tests by simply listening in class, Snowden decided to never do homework again. By skipping homework and much of the rest of his grade requirements, Snowden suddenly had a lot more time to scour the internet for his real education. He combed through programming forums and hacker chat rooms. He posted technical questions and received answers from computer geeks across the country, who he considered his friends. By the time he got to high school, Snowden's social scene was mostly online and he saw no real reason to keep following along with the boring public school curriculum, so he thought up a new hack. With a little web research, he found out that the local community college didn't require a high school diploma to apply, so he took a chance and sent in an application. He scored highly on the entrance exams, and then he was accepted. By the autumn of 1999, little Eddie had become 16-year-old Ed Snowden 
licensed driver, college student, and professional computer programmer. His job was part-time, working for a web design business, whose main office was located just behind the headquarters of the NSA. At the time, the NSA was housed in a building complex at Fort Meade Army Base in Maryland. Snowden passed in and out of the base almost daily for the two years he worked for the web design company without any credentials. This meant Snowden was at Fort Meade on the morning of September 11, 2001, less than three months after he turned 18. His boss sent him home immediately as the base began lockdown procedures. The flow of traffic leaving the D.C. area was intense, and Snowden was caught in the gridlock. Staring at the fearful exodus taking place around him, he knew the world was changing before his eyes, and that America would raise its defenses in response to the attack. He also knew he had something powerful to contribute to those defenses, his computer skills. Snowden never returned, to the part-time job at Fort Meade. He said, a normal IT job seemed too safe for this new world of conflict. I hoped I could do something like in the movies, hacker versus hacker, tracking enemies and thwarting their schemes. The NSA and CIA seemed like the best place to do that, but they required a four-year university degree, which Snowden didn't have. That was a problem. But as usual, Snowden hacked it. After some online searching, he found that intelligence agencies often waive the degree requirement from military veterans. So Snowden joined the U.S. Army. The choice was a bit of a snub to Snowden's family history in the Coast Guard, but the Army promised to put his intelligence and computer skills to use immediately. In fact, Snowden tested so highly on his recruitment exams that the recruiters said he was shortlisted for the special forces right out of basic training. But Snowden's plan didn't quite pan out. He never made it out of boot camp. During an exercise only a few weeks into training, Snowden landed wrong on his leg and suffered a stress fracture. After being pulled out of rotation to heal, the army doctor dropped a bombshell on Snowden. He would have to start boot camp all over again and lose his special forces opportunity. Snowden was appalled. He hadn't joined the army to be an enlisted soldier. His goal was covert intelligence. Luckily, the doctor offered an alternative called an administrative separation a special discharge that was neither honorable nor dishonorable. With a signature, Snowden revoked his enlistment and hobbled home on crutches. It was time to find a new hack, a new way to use his computer skills to fight for the USA. A natural first step was applying for a security clearance which at the time only required submitting paperwork and an extensive background check. A very extensive one. The government interviewed everyone in Snowden's past and present life, including family, friends, teachers, 
and even the manager of a snow cone stand at Six Flags that Snowden worked one summer. Part of the reason for the depth and breadth of the background check was because Snowden had applied for a clearance called TS-SCI. There are three levels of security clearance, confidential, secret, and top secret. Top secret clearance, TS, can also have an additional certification called sensitive compartmented information, or SCI. This TS-SCI clearance is the highest and most difficult to obtain. But Edward Snowden was a stellar candidate from a military family. He later said, The goal of all this background checking was not only to find out what I'd done wrong, but also to find out how I might be compromised or blackmailed. The most important thing to the intelligence community is not that you're 100% clean, but that you're robotically honest. As an upstanding citizen, Snowden fit the bill. He was honest to a fault. After a final polygraph test, he was granted the highest security clearance the United States government had. He was 22 years old. Unfortunately, Snowden's deep honesty would cost him and the government more than either of them had bargained for. Up next, the top secret discoveries that led Snowden to blow the whistle. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 2005, 22-year-old Edward Snowden received the nation's highest security clearance. However, his first job was less than spy movie material. He was the overnight security guard for a top-secret facility, not what Snowden was aiming for. But amid endless rounds walking the hallways and testing out the office chairs, Snowden had plenty of time to search for positions that were more hands-on which is how he realized that he might not be looking for a government job at all. Over 20% of the intelligence community were private contractors, not government employees. This percentage included almost every technical and computer system administration position. On paper, these contractors work for Dell, Lockheed Martin, or any number of other huge corporations. But in reality, their offices and desks were inside the CIA and NSA. Being private contractors meant that tech workers often moved between the two agencies interchangeably as the systems weren't very different, only the scope of the data they processed. And many of the private positions were filled by recruiters, which is how Snowden found himself at a job fair with a stack of resumes. At one of the booths, a company called Comso pulled him in for an interview. 
Comso made it obvious that with America's war on terror ramping up, the agencies needed as many people as they could get. Requirements were loosened, and experience and clearance were the key factors in hiring now. By the time the interview process was over, Edward Snowden was a systems administrator at CIA headquarters. Finally, exactly what he'd been looking for. A chance to do some real good. Or so it seemed, until he actually started working. Snowden's new position was nocturnal management of the CIA's server architecture, which turned out to be a formal way of saying, you're the night guard for these big computers. Managing the CIA servers did come with one important new addition to Snowden's resume. He now had communication security clearance, or COMSEC. COMSEC clearance allowed Snowden to work with the CIA's cryptographic keys. These programs were considered the most important secrets the agency had because the crypto keys protected all the other secret data. He literally had the keys to the CIA's kingdom. But Snowden soon grew tired of simply rearranging and securing data. He wanted to be active and useful, not simply a night manager. Perhaps the answer was going overseas to the front lines of America's war on terror. Snowden started skimming the internal job postings. Nine months later, the search bore fruit. He found an open position as a CIA tech at a foreign office. Edward Snowden was going to the U.S. Embassy in Geneva, Switzerland. But before he left, the CIA decided he needed a bit of training as a field operative. Snowden was sent to Warrington, Virginia, where the CIA had its technology training program known as The Hill. In his six months at The Hill, Snowden learned the modern art of cyber intelligence. The espionage game had new rules, and they were all written in computer code. The CIA had developed astonishing methods of digital intelligence gathering, including a technique called Van Eck freaking, an antenna could be used to pick up electronic signals from a computer screen and duplicate the display on a different screen a large distance away. Snowden also learned the gritty details of collecting signals intelligence, or SIGINT. Emails, phone calls, radio transmissions, and any data information the CIA intercepted were considered SIGINT. Managing those SIGINT data systems would be Snowden's primary role at the embassy in Geneva. As Snowden put it, the idea is, if you're in an American embassy, far from home and surrounded by untrustworthy foreigners, you're going to have to handle all of your technical needs internally. The worst-kept secret in modern diplomacy is that the primary function of an embassy nowadays is to serve as a platform for espionage. From 2007 through the end of 2009, Snowden was the CIA's lone technician in Geneva. During this stretch, the globe experienced a massive economic downturn after the U.S. housing market crash in 2008. But in Geneva, business was booming. Snowden said, The rest of the world became more impoverished, while the Swiss banks 
gladly hid the money of those who'd profited from the pain. This helped me realize that something that is devastating for the public often is beneficial to the elites. Snowden was working for an elite agency, gathering intel on elite bankers. Meanwhile, real people were losing homes and jobs. Something didn't feel right to Snowden. He still wanted to protect America. But perhaps his CIA job was no longer the best way to do that. The National Security Agency had always been concerned with securing the nation's communications, which were now mostly digital. That was Snowden's realm, where he belonged. And IT techs moved between the agencies all the time. So in the spring of 2009, Snowden applied to an open position with the NSA and was immediately accepted. He'd come a long way since the days of government job fairs. Now, he was one of the most experienced top-secret systems administrators in the world, and he was only 26 years old. In July 2009, Snowden was living in Fusa, Japan. On paper, he was an employee of Dell, but in reality, he worked in a slick NSA data facility. The NSA's Pacific Technical Center handled the data infrastructure for the entire Pacific region. The NSA had the tacit permission of the local governments to install monitoring equipment as long as they shared the intelligence they collected. Immediately, Snowden realized that this was going to be a very different work environment from the CIA. As he explained, two things about the NSA stunned me right off the bat how technologically sophisticated it was compared with the CIA, and how much less vigilant it was about security. In Geneva, we'd had to haul the hard drives out every night and lock them up in a safe, and those drives were encrypted. The NSA hardly bothered to encrypt anything. The NSA was also woefully behind in backing up its massive stores of intel, most of the actual daily reports, documents, and digital recordings gathered by remote offices were never sent to the main servers at NSA headquarters. If there was a disaster, all that intel would be lost. So Snowden's bosses tasked him with creating an automated backup and storage system for the entire agency. He called it Epic Shelter. This program would scan through documents on all the NSA servers to find the most updated versions. It also checked file names for top-secret labels. If the program found a sensitive document where it wasn't supposed to be, it flagged the file to make sure someone deleted it. And crucially, Epic Shelter allowed Snowden himself to access nearly every file the NSA was backing up. This was how he accidentally discovered the NSA's deepest secret. On a calm afternoon in the autumn of 2009, Snowden was at his computer terminal combing through files flagged for deletion. He saw one on the list with a designation he didn't recognize. The document was so highly classified that only a few dozen people in the world were cleared to look at it. And Snowden wasn't one of them. So how did Epic Shelter find it? 
He double-clicked the document and realized it was there by mistake. Someone high up in the NSA's hierarchy had saved a draft of a top-secret report in the wrong place, putting it into a server that Epic Shelter monitored, and thus under Snowden's purview. Now, he was looking at detailed evidence of the NSA's most secret surveillance program, codename Stellar Wind. The document explained that the NSA was surveilling and storing the digital communications of most of the planet, including nearly every American citizen. The Stellar Wind program was for bulk collecting metadata. Metadata is the information about information. The who, when, where of communications. For example, phone call metadata is the number calling, the number called, the time and duration, and the GPS locations of the phones themselves. Metadata on the surface, dry sets of coordinates and numbers, can actually be the key to a rich portrait of any person's daily life. The NSA had figured out that it's not what you say, it's how you say it. By analyzing metadata patterns, they could find out where you slept, when you woke up, who you were with, all without ever hearing what you said. Snowden knew Stellar Wind was not so different from other CIA and NSA operations around the world. What shocked him was that the program had collected data on American citizens, and thus raised ominous questions about constitutional rights and mass surveillance. The Fourth Amendment was very clear about the search and seizure of citizens' property without a warrant. It was expressly forbidden. The Bush administration had found a workaround for that issue. They twisted the language of the Patriot Act to cover the activities of stellar wind. Snowden later explained, it was the government's position that the NSA could collect communications records without a warrant because it could only be said to have obtained them in the legal sense if and when the agency searched for and received them from its database. Essentially, the NSA was saying that however many records it collected, it wasn't breaking the law until it looked at those records. So the NSA kept collecting the metadata of everyone and storing everything. The data was just sitting there in the cloud, just in case they needed it later. As Snowden put it, the program's very existence redefined citizens' private communications as potential signals intelligence. Over the winter leading into 2010, Snowden became quiet and reserved. He felt adrift. The classified knowledge he now possessed was a heavier burden than he'd ever felt before. He imagined what would have happened if Stalin or Hitler had had stellar wind. He considered how genocide could be justified by tyrannical governments with the tools the NSA had. He explained, all any government had to do was select a person or a group to scapegoat and go searching for evidence of a suitable crime. He desperately wanted to warn his girlfriend, Lindsay, that they were being watched, along with every other American, but he couldn't tell her specifics. 
He couldn't tell her that the smartphone she used to take pictures or map out a hike through a Japanese forest was being monitored by the very agency Snowden worked for. He said, I felt like a fraud, a fool. As someone of supposedly serious technical skills who'd somehow helped to build an essential component of the system without realizing its purpose, I felt used. Trying desperately to maintain some moral high ground, Snowden left the NSA a year later. In early 2011, Snowden returned to the U.S. to work for the CIA under a Dell contract. At least the CIA's surveillance was taking place abroad, not spying on American citizens. But the knowledge of what he discovered at the NSA stuck with him. And then, Snowden encountered something that made him consider revealing his nation's deepest state secret. A refrigerator. When he returned to the U.S., Snowden moved into a new apartment, which meant he needed new furniture and new appliances. While he and his girlfriend Lindsay were shopping at Best Buy for a microwave, Snowden was intrigued by a display for a smart fridge. There was a screen in the door with a stylus attached. You could check your email, make phone calls, and watch YouTube, all from your refrigerator. And as Snowden noted, it could report back to its manufacturer about its owner's usage and about any other household data that was obtainable. Every day, Americans were inviting more and more surveillance into their homes under the disguise of convenience. The NSA was exploiting that convenience by using the gathered data as intelligence. And nobody seemed to care, so long as their Wi-Fi connection worked. As Snowden put it, contradictory thoughts rained down. I thought, pity these poor, sweet, innocent people. They're victims, watched by the government. Then I thought, shut up, stop being so dramatic. They're happy, they don't care, and you don't have to either. Grow up, do your work, pay your bills. That's life. This internal conflict raged louder and louder until Snowden had a seizure. In late 2011, Snowden collapsed in his kitchen. After being rushed to the hospital, he was diagnosed with epilepsy. The doctors told him the stress of work would continue to trigger seizures. They didn't know anything about the other dark secrets Snowden was holding. To them, the treatment seemed simple. Get a less stressful job in a less stressful city. Luckily, Snowden's extensive credentials in history with both the CIA and NSA allowed him to find a new job almost immediately and in a much more relaxing environment, Hawaii. But this meant going back into the belly of the beast, the NSA. Snowden was going back into the agency that had spun his life out of control. And this time, he would find such alarming evidence of government overreach that he would be forced to break the law. Coming up, Edward Snowden changes the course of whistleblowing history. Now back to the story. In early 2012, Snowden arrived at an NSA facility in Oahu, Hawaii, 
his job was simple. He compiled current events from each of the NSA's offices worldwide into easily readable reports to keep agents up to date. This meant Snowden had top-level digital access to everything the intelligence community was producing, including the CIA, FBI, and Department of Defense. Still burdened by the knowledge of stellar wind, Snowden wanted to understand more about how the program functioned. His old hacker curiosity couldn't help but peek into the inner workings. He already knew what the NSA was collecting. Now he was determined to see how the agency was doing it. Snowden started combing through the NSA's databases for information on Stellar Wind's programming. He eventually discovered the NSA's primary digital collection tool called PRISM. PRISM was an invisible firewall that all internet traffic passed through. To use PRISM effectively, the NSA had partnered with most major tech and internet companies. Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, Verizon, Facebook, AOL, YouTube, Skype, and Apple had all agreed to have their data scooped up by the NSA, including emails, photos, videos, and browser search histories. The NSA's excuse was national security, and no company wanted to risk angering the government of the most powerful nation on Earth. During the spring and summer of 2012, Snowden sunk deeper into his depression. Every workday, he descended through layers of security to sit at a desk inside a Hawaiian volcano and help his government lie to the world. He felt like he was part of an evil plot, and he was one of the main villains. In 2012, on his 29th birthday, Snowden took stock of his life in the literal dark tunnel he walked through daily. At one end of the tunnel was a lucrative career as an NSA administrator, overseeing the deepest secrets of the government's intelligence community. At the other end of the tunnel was the Hawaiian sunlight, a loving partner, and silently living a lie every day. Snowden couldn't move between these two worlds any longer. He had to break out. He remembered the terrible realization he'd had with the internet refrigerator. Why wasn't anyone else concerned about privacy anymore? The answer was an epiphany for Snowden. People weren't concerned because they didn't know about the surveillance. Nobody knew how widespread it was, and the public couldn't form an opinion about something they didn't know. So he made a decision. He was going to let them know. Edward Snowden spent the last half of 2012 seeking out concrete evidence that the U.S. government was surveilling the globe. Once he'd compiled the most relevant documents, he still needed to keep them safe from accidental widespread sharing. Snowden wanted to ensure that only the people he intended to see the top secret files would have access. So he encrypted each folder, then divided the encryption keys across multiple devices. Nobody but him could access the files until the keys were reunited. 
If anything happened to him, the files would be locked forever and the secrets would stay hidden. Unlike Chelsea Manning, Snowden decided early on that he wouldn't simply dump a trove of documents on a website like WikiLeaks. His concern was that he would be written off as a fraud, or worse, irrelevant. On the other hand, he couldn't go to his superiors with his concerns. He'd be cast out and vilified as a security threat, or even arrested and imprisoned without ever getting the information out. Snowden said, Given the risks I was taking, I needed to identify people I could trust who were also trusted by the public. They would need to be strong enough to challenge me on the distinctions between what I suspected and what the evidence proved, and to challenge the government when it falsely accused their work of endangering lives. So he decided to reveal his evidence to a small group of vetted journalists. He would provide the information but it would be their job to tell the story in a way that the public could understand. To this end, Snowden chose journalists who had a history of careful research, protecting sources, and ignoring government threats as they revealed their scoops. He reached out to them through encrypted emails, telling his story but signing off with an alias. Eventually, two journalists agreed to meet him. The first was Laura Poitras, a documentary filmmaker. The second was Glenn Greenwald, a contributor to The Guardian. Poitras had a history of reporting on U.S. government overreach, and Snowden believed Greenwald to be skeptical and argumentative, the kind of man who'd fight with the devil. That would be helpful, since the coming months were going to be hell. By early May 2013, Snowden had compiled thousands of files into a hidden folder on one of the NSA facility's old computers. Now all he had to do was figure out how to get the evidence out of the NSA. Luckily, Snowden had a Rubik's Cube. Each square block was bigger than a micro SD card. The tiny data disks used in digital cameras and cell phones. He could easily remove one of the plastic squares, insert a memory card, and then reinsert the square, hiding the square completely. He smuggled the NSA's darkest secret out of a top-secret facility inside a toy. Though getting the evidence out of the NSA had proven to be relatively easy, Finding a safe place to hand it off to Poitras and Greenwald was exceptionally difficult. If he simply dropped it off with them at a coffee shop, the government could easily find them, arrest them, and seize the evidence before the story ever made it to print. Snowden said, I felt like I was picking out my prison, or rather, my grave. The most challenging hack of my life wasn't plundering the NSA, but rather trying to find a meeting venue independent enough to hold off the White House and free enough not to interfere. This left very few places on Earth, but one of them was Hong Kong. China didn't have complete control of Hong Kong, but it was under enough Chinese influence that the United States couldn't simply do what it wanted there. Snowden called it a no-man's land. 
he told Poitras and Greenwald to meet him there as soon as possible. Then he took an emergency medical leave from work, went home, and wrote a note to his girlfriend, Lindsay. He couldn't risk telling her anything about what he was about to do, so he simply wrote, I love you. Finally, he went to the Honolulu airport and bought a ticket in cash. On May 20th, 2013, Edward Snowden landed in Hong Kong with an encrypted hard drive. It was filled with evidence of the secret mass surveillance programs, the only copy of that evidence that existed outside the NSA. On June 2nd, Poitras and Greenwald arrived in Hong Kong and followed Snowden's emailed instructions to the upscale Mira Hotel. There, in room 1014, the three of them changed the world. Snowden handed over copies of the encrypted files. He explained the contents with as much context and detail as possible. It took two whole days. Then, on June 5, 2013, Greenwald's first story was published in The Guardian. Another story came out on the 6th, and from there the news spread like wildfire. Headlines across the globe spilled the secret of the NSA's surveillance programs and secret court orders and delved into the complicity of almost every major internet company. The story was everywhere. Meanwhile, Snowden was watching the reaction of the U.S. government. He recalled, as the revelations ran wall-to-wall on every TV channel and website, it became clear that they had thrown everything into identifying the source. It was also clear that when they did, they'd impugn the credibility and motives of the leaker. But Snowden believed there was a crucial difference between a simple leaker and a whistleblower. He said, A whistleblower is a person who, through hard experience, has concluded that their life inside an institution has become incompatible with the principles to which that institution should be accountable. This person knows that they can't remain inside the institution and knows that the institution can't or won't be dismantled. Reforming the institution might be possible, however, so they blow the whistle and disclose the information to bring public pressure to bear. Snowden was following the lead of the earliest whistleblowers, all the way back to Ben Franklin. And like Franklin, Snowden didn't intend on staying anonymous. He said, If I didn't explain my actions and intentions, the government would swing the focus away from its misdeeds. The only hope I had of fighting back was to come forwards first and identify myself. On June 9th, the world met Edward Snowden. That morning, Poitras recorded a simple 20-minute interview in the hotel room and published it on The Guardian's website. The reaction was immediate. Just hours later, press descended on the Mira Hotel, and Snowden was forced to go on the run before he was cornered. Greenwald enlisted two local lawyers to help Snowden hide, while the media, 
and an army of covert agents set up camp outside every major hotel in Hong Kong, the lawyers took Snowden to one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. He spent the next several days hiding out with asylum seekers who shared everything they had with a strange American who refused to go outside. On June 14th, the United States officially charged Snowden with espionage. A week later, on June 21st, they formally requested his extradition from Hong Kong. It was Snowden's 30th birthday. Snowden had to get out of the country without being spotted. Luckily, an editor from WikiLeaks named Sarah Harrison stepped in to help. With her experience helping Julian Assange cross borders and her connections in Hong Kong, Sarah was an expert at getting people out of tight spots. She managed to obtain a temporary pass that would allow Snowden to enter Ecuador and stay there safely. All they had to do now was to get to the other side of the planet without crossing into U.S. territory or any airspace where the U.S. might have jurisdiction. To do that, they would have to fly to Russia, then Cuba, then Venezuela, before finally connecting to Ecuador's capital, Quito. But they never made it. When they landed in Moscow on June 23rd, the Russian authorities stopped Snowden and told him the United States had canceled his passport mid-flight. Snowden was stunned. The U.S. State Department had trapped him in Russia. The Russians took him to a lavish conference room in an upper level of the airport, where an English-speaking agent was waiting with several other men. Snowden took a seat and braced himself for what was coming. Snowden said that the agent gave what the CIA calls a cold pitch, which is basically an offer by a foreign intelligence service that says, come and work for us. If you don't cut off a foreign intelligence officer right away, it might not matter whether you ultimately reject their offer, because they can destroy your reputation simply by leaking a recording of you considering it. Snowden made it clear that he had no intention of cooperating with Russian intelligence services. He hadn't revealed the NSA secrets to betray his country, but with the aim of helping preserve a true democracy. The Russian agent smiled and nodded, knowing the score. They released Snowden and Harrison, who was still accompanying him. The pair spent the next 40 days in the Moscow airport. Snowden applied for asylum in 27 different countries. None accepted him. Finally, on August 1st, Russia granted Snowden temporary asylum, and he was allowed to leave the airport. He hasn't left Russia since. The actions of Edward Snowden launched a polarizing global debate about the merits of whistleblowing. Many Americans see Snowden as a patriot, many as a traitor. But Snowden knew that was coming, and he accepted it willingly, because he was hopeful that his revelations would also start a global conversation about privacy, which they did. That conversation has yielded some concrete results. Since he pulled back the curtain on Stellar Wind, 
most internet companies have increased their security measures against surveillance. These changes include Apple's hardened encryption and Facebook's user-controlled privacy settings. Still, the debate rages on as big data grows bigger and surveillance opportunities multiply. More on that next week in the finale of our Whistleblower series. Thanks for listening to Espionage. We'll be back next week with the last episode of our special, an exploration of the uncertain future of whistleblowing. For more information on Edward Snowden, amongst the many sources we used, we found Permanent Record by Edward Snowden and No Place to Hide by Glenn Greenwald extremely helpful to our research. You can find all of our ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Espionage was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>